It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. On Monday afternoon on the committee corridor of the Palace of Westminster, a Treasury Select Committee meeting got an alarming prediction from a normally calm source. I'm afraid the one that I, I'm going to sound, I guess, rather apocalyptic about is food. It's not just, I have to tell you, a major worry for this country. It is a major worry for the developing world as well. Uh, and, and so if I had to sort of, sorry for being apocalyptic for a moment, um, but that is a, that's a major concern. Andrew Bailey, the Bank of England governor, using the word apocalyptic to describe possible future food shortages has amplified fears about the cost of living squeeze. How helpful is it for the uh, governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, to use words like uh, apocalyptic when he's uh, talking about a global food shortage? Who does that help? I mean, the Bank of England governor apologising for sounding apocalyptic. How bad can it get? I think the outlook is pretty dark at the moment. Then, on Wednesday morning, came the news. Inflation in the UK had hit 9%. Just appreciate just how big that is, just how historic it is. The last time inflation was that high was 40 years ago, in 1982. It really changed the way that central bankers and governments thought about inflation. That's how serious and big these numbers are. A few weeks ago, a couple of hundred miles away in Brussels, another deceptively dry meeting was taking place where some economic bombshells were once again let off in what looked like a boring policy discussion. A European Commission leader announced the dawning of a new era. The age of cheap living in Europe, he said, was over. The cost of living crunch is not a temporary setback, but our new future. Is he right? And if so, what does that future look like? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, have we been living on the cheap? My name is Bruno Waterfield. I'm the Brussels correspondent for The Times. I work and live in Brussels and my bread and butter is reporting EU political and European political stories. The one Bruno is tackling for us today begins a few weeks back, at possibly the least likely setting for high drama, a Zoom conference at a Brussels think tank called Bruegel. They're actually quite interesting, which is pretty rare for Brussels think tanks. They write nice, succinct reports. I saw on Twitter that they just put out a recording um, of a discussion on the cost of living, on energy price increases, particularly. So I tuned in on a quiet afternoon uh, to listen to it. 
Hello and a very warm welcome to the Sound of Economics Live, Bruegel's podcast and event format that uh, we are especially using. In this Most of the meeting was you know, very dull, as you'd expect. It was all combined with the sort of weirdness of video conference. So you get strange backgrounds, people try and put flags in the back, and you get these sort of slightly looming faces as people sort of gurn <laughs> at the computer. It's hardly... It's hardly TV. And today we are very pleased uh, to have um, uh, Dietrich Samson um, here joining us. Uh, he is the head of cabinet of the executive vice president Franz Timmermans of the European Commission. The main figure um, speaking was this guy Dietrich Samson, who is chief of staff to Franz Timmermans. And, and, and Dietrich's an interesting guy. He used to be the um, head of the Dutch Labour Party. So I was very interested to see what he had to say because he's not the usual kind of official. He can be pretty outspoken. So I thought it might be interesting. I thought there'd be nuggets that I'd be able to to use. Can you just, before you tell, tell us what he said, explain to me and to, and to the listener, he's the chief of staff to an executive vice president to the European Commission. Now, at one level, you could say, well, that's not very important, is it? Because he's the kind of under thing to an under thing to something else. Franz Timmermans, another Dutch socialist, member of the Dutch Labour Party, um, is a second in command in the commission, hence his very grand title of executive vice president. He is actually in charge of the EU's policy particularly on climate change, which is one of our most important areas of policy. So he's basically one of the top five people here in Brussels. And Diedrich Samson is his chief of staff and a close political ally as well, is basically in charge of his thinking. He's the guy who talks to him and draws up policy. So in terms of policy, in terms of what the EU is actually likely to do, in terms of how the EU is conceptualizing or trying to put together a narrative on some of these questions, big, big questions this year, he is extremely important. So when you're listening to Diedrich Samsom, you're really kind of listening to Franz Timmerman, and therefore you're really kind of listening to top thinking in the EU. Yeah, in fact, even better in a way, because you're not listening necessarily to the brushed up, polished product that has gone through committee after committee and has had the sort of hand of the spin doctors on it to polish that up even further. When you're talking to Diedrich Samson, you're kind of really hearing it from the horse's mouth. And then that's, in fact, what the session, the meeting and the presentation turned out to be. Every economist can explain to you that the only uh, answer to this energy crisis should be getting our demand down as soon as we can. And a part of that is a story that nobody dares to tell out loud, dares to say out loud. So let me be the one that does it. Yes, energy will be much more expensive as of now. Yes, energy was way too cheap in the last 40 years. And we've profited from it. We have created an enormous wealth at the expense of planet Earth and so we do realize right now at the expense of geopolitical imbalances. And both need to be repaired. And in order to repair them, we need to pay more for energy and, by the way, also for food. The two basic needs of life, food and energy, we have paid way too little for that in the last 40 years. 
and we need to restore that situation. It couldn't be clearer what he was saying. He was saying that actually it's a form of natural justice, a rebalancing of the real economic and even natural order in order in terms of a planet for consumers and households to start paying these much, much higher prices. Now, at one level, this sounds like a fairly traditional green argument. So were you surprised to hear it because it was coming from him? Yes. I mean, he is a social democrat in terms of political um, background. It comes against a wider political backdrop right across the European Union, in, in, in Britain as well, in every country um, in the world where governments are actually trying to mitigate these price increases. They're trying to talk them down as disruption and they're trying to make them better for people because most people, I think, would agree that one of the gains, one of the most positive developments of life over the last 40 years is the cheaper cost of living and better living standards. Having cheap commodities, having cheap energy, and certainly having cheap food are one of the things we take for granted, yes, but we expect and we expect our politicians um, to make sure that we don't take too much of a hit. Okay. So we tend to think of economic crunches, recessions even, even the one from 2008, crashes, and now periods of inflation as temporary crises. They are essentially cyclical. They'll come back and then economies turn around and things change for the better. Samson seems to be suggesting that this time it's different. He's saying it this time is different. He's saying that the shift away from dependence on Russian energy imports, whether gas and oil, the switch into uh, renewable electricity will increase the price of energy. That also means, of course, it increases the price of a key agricultural input. If you think of all the vegetables that you buy in your supermarket that are grown in greenhouses, whether in Planet, Fanet or um, in the Netherlands, which is the world's greatest exporter of tomatoes. I don't know if you knew that. Um, so it has a really big impact on food prices too. Basically, energy prices get translated into increases in food prices extremely quickly. And that also means that people's household bills are hit on two fronts which is their energy costs are going up. Uh, They've doubled in a lot of um, European countries. But also, they can actually see every time they go to the supermarket that the prices of a lot of basic commodities, such as bread, is going up. The price of of soft wheat over the last year has increased by um, 67%. Uh, And a lot of that's due to the war in Ukraine, but also a lot of it is to do with factors like a six-fold increase in the price of gas as an input for farmers, all those greenhouses you see scattered across the countryside. So is he therefore saying that the cheap energy we've had and the other and parts of Europe have had much more than us in terms of Russian imports of gas and oil are never returning? Yes, he's saying it's over. It's over now. And the time, the transition time is very, very short. Can't be done overnight because you create too much Uh, havoc and trouble in a society so you need to take your time but given the current situation we have little time to do that Diederik thank you so much these were some very very important and clear messages at the end and I think I I completely uh, agree with you he admitted right at the end that 
doing this overnight can create too much havoc and trouble in society, particularly, you know, countries in the Eurozone and the Southern and Eastern Europe that have barely recovered from the Eurozone crisis, from the financial crisis in 2008. Living standards there have barely recovered and people are very worried there about a return to Eurozone austerity policies, they were called. So it's a sore, it's a tender issue uh, for a lot of people. It's a tender issue for a lot of social Democrats, of course, because they were punished politically across Europe because they were quite often in government for some of those policies, at least. So what kind of levels of cost increases are we talking about? Everybody here in Britain is talking about the cost of living crisis uh, and so on. Uh, Are we seeing something in Europe that is broadly similar or that is different between different European countries? We're seeing something broadly similar. So electricity prices in the year until last month increased some 44% on average across the um, EU. Food prices about 7 or 8%. Inflation is running at about, forecast to run about 6-7%. So it's broadly similar. There are lots of parts of Europe where people have already felt squeezed and they are, and their governments are concerned that they're not prepared to put up with feeling more squeezed. Which countries are significantly worse hit by inflation than others? Well, it's, it's not necessarily the overall rate of inflation. Quite often it is these two areas of food and energy prices. And at the moment, the countries that are howling the most are Italy, Spain and Greece, but behind them is France. France is insulated from the energy costs, though not petroleum, because it has a very strong one of the world leaders in in nuclear power. So its its electricity costs are you know some seventy percent of German costs because of nuclear power. But in terms of petroleum, they're still vulnerable. France is a really big country. People have to travel big distances. There aren't buses if you go to rural. France have got a great rail network, but it certainly doesn't cover the whole country. So petroleum and diesel is still very, very important. Now, countries like Hungary, where the government's whole popularity or its whole attempt to stay popular is based on subsidised petrol and diesel prices, which are set at about £1 a litre. That's not looking very sustainable. And a lot of these countries really worry about that. Coming up, governments are worried. Their citizens perhaps even more so. So what are the politicians going to do? One thing is definitely not sustainable, and that's a political situation where people blame their governments for this cost of living increase. But first, a message from a colleague. Hi, I'm John Witherow, editor of The Times. Thanks to you, we get to cover the broadest and most important daily news stories. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Now, let's talk about how we got here. Samson's view is that essentially we have been living on the cheap. We've been eating food um, at at an unsustainable price, essentially, that we couldn't keep up. And we've been consuming energy in a way that destroyed the planet or destroyed the prospects for the planet. And now we're involved in a major 
adjustment. What are the decisions, essentially, that have, have got us to this point? And I imagine that a lot of them are sort of buried in the deep past. It was the first time the international community had come together to tackle the issue of climate change. After 10 days of discussion and sometimes heated debate, the treaty was signed on the 11th of December 1997. Decided. The Kyoto Protocol. The basic flaw in the Kyoto Protocol is it's all about targets and timetables independently of the cost. The industrial countries who ratified Kyoto, most of those countries that took on targets haven't achieved them. The real action will be probably 2009 in Copenhagen. 2009, Copenhagen, who remembers Copenhagen? Well, after years of working toward a climate agreement, the same governments convened in Copenhagen and failed miserably. If you look at the roots, the roots of uh, the crisis here. Look, we've known about climate change, certainly for, for 20 years. It's been at the, the forefront of uh, a lot of policy discussion. We've known about uh, dependency on cheap uh, Russian fossil fuels, certainly since the Russia's uh, invasion of, of parts of Georgia, certainly since Russia's invasion and annexation of Crimea in 2014, after the Fukushima tsunami and earthquake um, in Japan, Germany banned nuclear power stations and closed them down. This is the moment Japan's nuclear disaster began. A giant tsunami wave crashes into the Fukushima Daiichi power plant, seriously damaging the building's reactors. This could be a Chernobyl in the making. We are now going into uncharted territory. We are thinking the unthinkable. Think of a car out of control without brakes and then your radiator explodes. That's the situation we have here. We will progressively abandon nuclear energy between now and 2022. This is a great challenge for Germany, but it also means huge opportunities for coming generations. That increased its dependency on Russian gas, even as it made a big dash for renewables. So none of these, none of these problems are really surprising. And even the disruption caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine has elements that are very, very predictable, certainly in terms of energy costs. So you do have to ask yourself why it is that people should pay in their household bills for an inability or an evasion of taking difficult decisions over the, the last 20 years now. I think it's going to be quite difficult for a lot of people in power to justify the sharp edge of a sword should fall against ordinary consumers and households. So we've had this long-term problem, and it cuts in two possible uh, two possible ways. One is dependence on Russian fuel, which is no longer sustainable, and then the second one is the fact that the alternatives were actually not environmentally good, which gave them a big problem as they try and move towards net zero. Yes, and I think again that raises another awkward question, which the French say. Uh, very strongly should be uh, addressed, which is the issue of, of nuclear energy, which does give you the possibility to provide um, large amounts of electricity um, as a cheap cost and help you bring down the level of carbon that you're emitting. Now, that taboo actually has very quietly in a lot of countries like the Netherlands and even Belgium been turned around. So the focus now increasingly is going to be on these small modular reactors that the French and the Brits 
and the Americans talk about because now they really are becoming absolutely necessary. There isn't a luxury of a choice anymore there. If you're going to switch off gas and oil, you are going to need nuclear reactors as well as renewable wind and solar in terms of keeping the national grid going. Now, the problem here is, uh, I imagine, that even that will take some time to get going. So you've got a gap between getting rid of your arguably cheap Russian gas and the coming on stream of your new nuclear uh, capacity. And in the meantime, you've got to deal with the fact that fuel costs have gone up. So let's talk about how you deal with governments mitigating the problem of increased fuel charges and therefore uh, significant problems for populations. Well, the traditional form of what's going on at the moment is to give VAT reductions to put uh, caps on prices. Now, obviously, that costs the state because that difference has to be made up. and It doesn't do anything to reduce demand. If you switch, for example, from buying uh, Russian oil by the end of the year and you switch to buying Saudi oil or uh, Algerian oil, you actually increase demand for those particular products, their particular crude. You, you carry on pushing prices up as well. So you, again, you've got to ask yourself, how long can you do that? Can you do it for a decade? Can you um, maintain low um, energy prices with essentially national exchequers making up that difference? You can have a windfall tax on the companies who are making uh, a lot of profits from that to fund the transition. But again, you know, that, that has a temporary character. What does Samsung say should happen in the situation whereby we have much higher energy prices and consequently, as part of that, significant inflation? He essentially argues that people are just going to have to get used to higher prices. On the, the, the question of on energy prices, actually, there is something strange happening at the moment. When we were in an energy crisis in the 70s, countries responded with actually the only sensible response that you can deliver in such a situation, which is rationing. Ration the use of fossil fuels because you have an energy crisis. So we saw the car-free car Sundays and, and the likes. At the moment, many, if not all countries worldwide, but especially Europe, are responding by subsidizing energy, which everybody will explain to you is the wrong response. Exactly. Let's face it, it's, it's the wrong way around. The European Commission is very keen on and has put out guidance um, for people with the support of the International Energy Agency. They want people to only drive on a, a daily basis, only have their heating on for half a year, don't uh, run the water tap continuously as you wash your dishes, try and work from home as much as possible. But in a way, uh, might be fair enough, and I'm sure a lot of people will buy into it, but it doesn't really deal with the big policy questions of who's responsible for getting this right and the importance, I think, of making sure that the poorest people in society don't pay the price in the sense that regressive prices hit poorest people and poorest countries the hardest. And I think that really does need to be dealt with because we're talking about very, very um, large uh, quantities of people. Is your perception 
that the EU is essentially, if Samson has his way, is is saying to people, we've got to conserve. You've got to be more careful about what you do because your prices are going to be high. In other words, you're going to have to absorb these price increases by using less of the thing itself. Because if so, it's very reminiscent of some of the things which are being said by conservative politicians here in Britain in the last couple of weeks. Yes, I think that's, that is a big part of the messaging at the moment. But I don't think, I don't think it really addresses the kind of fundamental shifts that we're seeing because these shifts are so fundamental that they, they call for something that it's less privatized than, you know, individuals having new relationships with taps or their air conditioning or their central heating systems. It demands something a bit greater. And I think we're in, at the moment, we're in the hiatus between what is quite easy, which is to tell people to um, switch off or, or use less and actually really dealing with the big questions that are raised, we're actually going to need more electricity and not less in the, the decades ahead. So I think there's a really, there is still a need for that conversation, a European conversation, a national conversation, a global conversation about how you bring people on board in terms of taking a journey. And that's going to mean you're going to have to talk about the options rather than just setting kind of abstract targets. Let's talk a bit more about public reaction so far to increased fuel costs and to increased other prices, Bruno. Well, both Italy and Spain have had quite significant street protests. Increased fuel and energy prices become a major factor in Spanish politics. In France, uh, Macron has come into um, power in France, very alarmed about the cost of living, which was probably the biggest issue in the presidential elections. He's facing pretty difficult parliamentary elections in June, and it's very clear that his administration and government is concentrating on almost um, nothing else but that. So he's, politically, it's going to be and very, very difficult. Politically, it is very, very difficult. And it's this is seen as the big issue for this late summer and autumn, particularly in autumn when the storage tanks, gas storage tanks need to be filled. And if prices are going for the roof, how are governments going to pay? I think what's really needed in, in many countries is a conversation a real conversation, treating people like grown-ups about what needs to be done in the, certainly by the end of this decade and a way of sharing the pain that people buy into because one thing is definitely not sustainable and that's a political situation where people blame their governments for this cost of living increase. That is going to be a real problem for not just in the European Union but globally in the six months to year ahead if these increases continue and the war in Ukraine is looking as if it will be prolonged for at least this year at the very very least is how that is addressed how do you how do you create an in it together kind of culture how do you have that conversation to ensure that you don't just push people more to the margins it's been very much discussed and look at the last 
French elections in terms of the rise of populists or right-wing nationalist parties. I don't really see that unless you can get people on board, surely you're just going to drive those trends uh, even more. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Brussels correspondent for The Times, Bruno Waterfield. You can find all of Bruno's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. And if you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, Send us an email to storiesofourtimes at the times.co.uk. We really do read them, you know. See you tomorrow. Hold up. 